Okay, so we'll be starting in verse 20. We'll go through 25 through 32. My soul clings to the dust. Revive me according to your word. I have declared my ways, and you answer me. answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts. So shall I meditate on your wonderful works. My soul melts from heaviness. Strengthen me according to your word. Remove from me the way of lying and grant me your law graciously. I have chosen the way of truth. Your judgments I have laid before me. I cling to your testimonies. O Lord, do not put me to shame. I will run the course of your commandments, for you shall enlarge, enlarge my heart. You may be seated. Before we begin this morning, would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you that our chief end in being here is to give you glory, to enjoy you forever. And Father, just now as we have your word open before us, I pray we would do just that. We'd be able to give you glory, we'd be able to give you honor and praise through your word that you have blessed us with, that you've graced us with. We just got done singing about your wonderful words, and they truly are wonderful. They're words that give life, words that change hearts. Words that have the power to save. Words that help make us wise for salvation. Words that cleanse and heal and provide comfort. We thank you for your wonderful words. And I pray that they would produce life in us as a result of hearing your words today. I pray that the life of God through Jesus Christ would flow in us, that we might take these wonderful words of life and not just have them as information, but Lord, we would share these words. These words would be a part of our life. These words would be central, in fact, to our life. Father, I pray for your word this morning that it would go forth and accomplish the very thing that you intend for it to accomplish Every chair that's occupied this morning, I pray, would be attentive to hear what your spirit would desire to teach them this morning. We thank you for your precious word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of you are familiar with Spurgeon's work on the treasury of David and in there he speaks to the Psalms as a whole and Psalm 119 in particular Spurgeon said men that mean to travel the right way will lay before them a map men that mean to travel the right way will lay before them a map this past week, I had an opportunity. I took uh, the two boys and, and we went to uh, up the road to Taylor University where they had a guest speaker, uh, Dr. Daniel Dreisbach, who is a professor at American University in Washington, D.C. He was a guest lecturer that evening. They had him in town for a couple days to commemorate what was on Thursday, Constitution Day. And so he was there on, on the Wednesday night uh, on the eve of Constitution Day and he was giving a lecture on how the Bible informed the American constitutional tradition. It's fascinating. It was very, uh, very enlightening, very helpful. And one of the things that he talked about in regard to our founders, he said the founders were presented with a challenge and the challenge was this, how do we handle personal responsibility and discipline in a self-government? The founders wanted the new nation to travel the right way. So where did they turn for a replacement, having known up to that time 
what he referred to as the whip and the rod of English rule. Where did they turn? They turned to the Bible. That's where they turned. The Bible served as their map, charting their course, guiding their way. The Bible served as a significant influence upon the founders of this new nation. They read it regularly. Do you know that one of the reasons why our country was so literate back at the end of the 18th century, it was because they read their Bibles. That's what they did. They were often quoting from the Bible. They were citing the Bible oftentimes when having discussions pertaining to directions for this new nation. In short, they allowed the Bible and the Bible truths and principles to navigate their steps. And this, friends, is a political governing body that we're speaking of. What about the church? What about the households that make up the church? What about the individuals here in Christ? Have you grown weary of your Bible? Have you taken for granted you have a Bible? You have access to a Bible? Is it your habit to turn to the Bible to know what God says about a matter? Do you view this Bible as your map? In desiring to travel the right way, are you daily laying before you this map? The psalmist here in Psalm 119 exhibits a heart's desire to travel the right way. Amen? I mean, that's what he's, up to this point, that's what he's been putting forth. You've been able to see it, I think, pretty clearly. His heart's desire is to travel the right way. And yet what's seen here? In the text today is this tension between personal responsibility and discipline. See, the founders experienced this tension at a government national level. The psalmist seems to experience a similar tension at an individual level. How do I handle personal responsibility for my own sin... And discipline to be holy because God is holy. He's called me to be holy. It takes discipline to be holy. How do I handle that personal responsibility and discipline in the context of my identity, a worshiper of God, and the culture which is ungodly in which I live? I believe that's the psalmist dealing and grappling with this tension in his own life. And we might tweak the question just a bit for us today in the 21st century. We might ask, how do I handle my personal responsibility for my own sin and discipline myself to pursue holiness in the context of my identity in Christ and the culture which is pagan, largely pagan, in which I live? How do I do that? What's that look like? And we talked last week just a bit about the psalmist's context for things like cleanliness and purification and what it is to be holy. That in his day, that was a large matter of concern. We know that the psalmist would have been privy to God's laws. We know the psalmist would have been privy to sin offerings. We can read about that in the book of Leviticus. The psalmist would have been able to understand and recognize that God's laws expose his sin. He would have recognized in the word because the word says in a few different places in Leviticus, Leviticus 11, Leviticus 19, Leviticus 20. The psalmist would have understood more that he was to be holy. Why? Because God is holy. Be holy because I am holy. It's there in the word. And his desire, his understanding to be holy, coupled with this feeling, and I say feeling, rightly so, because what we read in the Psalms are many feelings. Yes, moved by the Holy Spirit to pen and put in writing 
But these feelings come bubbling to the surface when we get to the Psalms. Feelings of anger, feelings of disappointment, feelings of shame, feelings of joy. All of these things we see in the context of the Psalms. And so we have this sin and we have this call to holiness. And we, we, we understand and we recognize there's no place for sin and holy living. They don't go together. There's this recognition, I, I can't keep his laws. There's a recognition probably from the psalmist of Deuteronomy 8 verse 3 which says that man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. And then for us here today, if we were to flip into the pages of the New Testament and go to a place like Romans 3, 19 and 20, we would see there, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be what? Stopped. And all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of what? Sin. By the law is the knowledge of sin. Just a few chapters later in Romans chapter 7, Paul is describing the law, and he says that the law is holy. And the commandment is holy, just, and good. You see, God in His Word, and especially we see this time and again in the Old Testament Scriptures, obey my voice, walk in my ways. Obey my voice, walk in my ways. And what we come to see is that the law that renders me guilty is the law that elsewhere is deemed holy. In Galatians chapter 3, we see the purpose for the law that it was added because of what? Transgressions. Until what? Till the seed. Till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. That's Galatians 3.19. You see, the law pointed to the one who alone could sufficiently atone for sin. The law made manifest the transgressions of men, stirring them up, provoking them, if you will unsettling them, leading to these feelings that oftentimes came about, guilt, shame. That's why I love that hymn. It talks about, be of sin the double cure. A rock of ages. You see what Christ did is he took care of that. In fact, the Bible says that all have sinned. All have sinned and fall short. All stand guilty before a holy God. And the psalmist is writing and he's moved by the Spirit and he's pointing forward, I believe, to the time, helping us see, even yet today, when this righteousness from God would be revealed, this righteousness apart from the law, a righteousness that's embodied in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. But as he writes here in the text, in verses 25 through 32, the psalmist only has the hope of what's to come. We stand on the other side of the cross as we read this, don't we? He's holding on to hope with the map that he has in God's word. I was drawn to those two verses in Psalm 119, verses 49 and 50, where he says, Remember the word to your servant upon which you've caused me to hope. This is my comfort and my affliction. For your word has given me what? It's given me life. The wonderful words of life. Your word's given me life. So the tension that's felt by the psalmist is a tension experienced, I believe, by each one of us here in Christ. How do I handle my sin with the expectations that God has for me to be holy? How do I live a holy life when it seems sin is constantly crouching at the door? The psalmist points to the inner man, 
We see that in verse 25 and 28. My soul, my soul. And I believe this in part is, is key to the holy living that God requires of his children. Perhaps you've seen your sin only as that which you do outwardly. The psalmist is teaching us, I believe, that the heart and mind need tending. John Flavel, old-time writer, had that phrase that's just always stuck with me. And he says, heart work is hard work. Heart work is hard work. Perhaps that's one of the reasons we don't tend to our hearts all that much today. It's hard. We live in a culture that by and large doesn't like to work hard anymore. Amen? All around. You don't have to look very far. People want things given to them nowadays. Spurgeon also said in this regard, he said, it's one of the great lacks of our age that heads count for more than hearts. And men are more ready to learn than to love, though they are by no means eager in either direction. You see what he's saying there? The idea of of heads counting for more than hearts, learning, intellect, brain power, if you will, absorbing stuff here, being more important than tending to what's here, living out what's here, loving people, Loving God, loving people. Those are the two great commandments, right? Proverbs 4.23, a well-known proverb, applies here. It's keep your heart. Guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it flow the issues. Let's bring the issues of life. How does a follower of Jesus take responsibility for his own sin and discipline himself to walk with God in a relationship with Jesus Christ? I hope that every single one of you who are sitting in a chair this morning, I hope that question resonates with you. Because I hope that you want and desire with all of your heart, soul, strength, mind to walk with him. How do I do it? How can I keep doing it? This series that we're in is called Trial Athlon. It's enduring through the finish line even when life hurts. And some of you in here, I know life's hurt. Perhaps some of you in here, life's hurting right now. All the more reason that we have this Bible as our map. That we might know the right way. How does a follower do and and walk out this holy living in a worldly environment? How do we walk in holiness amidst a culture that's predominantly unholy. The psalmist teaches us and provides for us, I believe, his own testimony. Listen, his own testimony, not of perfection. So in case some of you are are, are thinking, well, this guy's got it all together. No, I think we're going to see in the text, he doesn't have it all together. Neither do you, nor do I. But the goal and the objective is to walk in holiness, to be holy because God said be holy. It's who he is and he wants us to be like him in that regard. He sent his son that we might be able to walk in that way. Men that mean to travel the right way will lay before them a map. What signs indicate the psalmist means to travel the right way? Be thinking about that as we go through the psalm. What are the indicators in the text that the psalmist's map is God's word? I think the text will help us reveal some of those questions. I do believe evident here in this stanza is the psalmist's challenges, his trials. And and yet by the time we get to verse 32, you see progression through the trials. I was reminded of of Psalm 23 where where David says in that psalm, Yea, though I walk, what? I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil. Why? For you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. He's going through that valley. Some of us maybe just need to hear the word this morning 
of progressing through the trial. There's trials that are going to be a lot longer in scope for some of you than others. Some of these trials that you're in are are going to be very hard. They're going to be severe spikes to the trials that you're in. But let's, brothers and sisters, make progress in the faith through the trials. Because the trials, James tells us, are to produce perseverance and patience in us. They are meant to complete us and mature us as Christ would have us be mature. Okay? Are you progressing in the faith that you proclaim? Up to this point in the psalm, it's clear that the psalmist has a heart to seek God and he's, he's declared his delight and rejoicing with God's word. Remember, that's the big picture of Psalm 119. Here is a man who loves God and he loves God's word. Oh, that it would be said of us, men and women, we love God and we love his word. In saying that, our lives ought to reflect that love for him. Our lives ought to reflect that love for his word. Right? Let's be sure that we are endeavoring to live. The Bible talks about living and walking synonymously. Living and walking. What we're professing. And you don't have to do it by yourself. In fact, he's promised us that he will be with us always. And he is through the spirit who abides within us forever. Praise God. We don't have to do it alone. So he's declared his love for God. He's delighted in God's word. But I want you to notice something. I want you to look where he begins this stanza. My soul clings to the dust. Now, if that's not a sober downer of a verse to begin, I don't know what is. My soul clings to the dust. Another rendering there might say, my life is laid low. Clinging to the dust. Here's a man of God who's clinging to the dust. This this man who speaks often of God being his delight is laid low in the dust as this stanza opens. Now we're not privy, at least at this point, to exactly what the cause of this spirit of despair, this clinging to the dust, this spirit of humiliation, despair. But we do know this, and I'm grateful to God for seeing this. He doesn't stay in the dust. You know, there are folks today, I think, like hanging out in the dust. You ever heard of those people, those woe, woe is me people? Uh, maybe you would better get a picture and handle of them if I was to describe them as Eeyore kind of people. Woe is me. And truly they may be going through some hard situations. But they rest there. They remain in the dust. I want you to see something this morning. This this might be exactly what you need to hear this morning. The psalmist doesn't stay in the dust. He knows where to go when his life takes him to the dust. He knows where to turn when something that he has chosen, his desires have taken him in in a place off the path the Lord has prescribed for him. He knows where to turn. And the very next verse tells us that. He's not there for very long. He tells us that. I'm grateful to the Lord. He's not wallowing in this low, despair-ridden state. But he's going to God for help immediately. He says, revive me according to your word. The word revive has in mind to bring to life. Give me life. One who's been clinging to the dust. You get the contrast. Lifeless. Revive me according to your word. Bring life where there's previously been no life or signs of life. 
And the psalmist was feeling lifeless. And he cries out to God to revive him. By what means? According to your word. And that's going to reappear in just a moment here. It's a critical phrase for us to grasp. You might find yourself in a bind. Your soul might be muddied this morning. Something has you pinned down and it's got you down. It's draining you and it's sucking the life right out of you. Where are you going to turn? Where are you going to go? For the psalmist, the petition is for life. Revive me. But know where the life source is coming from. According to your word. Do you tend to ask the Lord to revive you through the hearing and the reading of his word? The word is life-giving. The word has the power to save. The word provides wisdom for salvation to occur. The word is transformative and it renews our mind, the Bible says. Are you quick to consult the word when your soul is clinging to the dust? The psalmist also declared his ways. Verse 26. Not only did he petition for the Lord to revive him. But he says, I have declared my ways. The, the word declare has in mind of counting them one by one. Marking them. Making a deliberate record of them. He calls upon God to revive him according to his word. And he declares his ways before God in prayer. So what do we see? We see that he's petitioning God and he's confessing, I believe. He's petitioning and he's confessing. There's a word of instruction here. Perhaps a rebuke. Let's not be hard-hearted if that's the case. We tend to petition well when the soul is clinging to the dusts. Maybe we don't say, revive me. Maybe we say, help me, Lord. Maybe we say, deliver me, Lord. Maybe we say, rescue me, Lord. Whatever it is that you might petition of him in that moment. But how often, coupled with a petition, do we declare our ways before the Lord? Lord, here's what I've done. And I'm confessing before you that what I've done is not something that would please you. I'm agreeing with you that my sin is an abomination. That's how he views it. Remember, we're talking to a holy God here. And we're bringing, we're declaring our sin before a holy God. Confessing, I believe, is not high on the list oftentimes. We tend to want God to move on our behalf without having to declare our ways. God, do this, but all the while we remain silent on declaring our ways that we know deep down are wrong, are sinful. We need to understand that the word says a broken and contrite spirit he will not despise. We need not be ashamed to come to our heavenly father Declaring our ways, people. Look at the testimony of the psalmist. He says, I have declared my ways and you answered me. You answered me. Anyone here ever been the recipient of an answer to prayer? I mean, a real clear answer to prayer. When life is difficult, you're laid low and you're petitioning him to revive you. And it's coupled with declaring your ways before him. And he answered you. He answered you. The God of heaven answered you. We need to read in the text and understand that his answer comes not just with a petition. His answer came to the psalmist also as he declared his ways. 
His answer opens your eyes to His ways. And you begin to realize that your ways perhaps landed you in the dust. And His answer now begins doing a work in you, as it does in the psalmist. What's he say next? Teach me your statutes. Familiar phrase. You might even jot it or underline it because it's going to show up time and time again in Psalm 119. Teach me your ways. If, if we were to go, go backwards, we see that verse 12 of Psalm 119, he says, Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. As he remembers who God is, he's then crying out for him to teach. Here, as he's remembering his own sin, and as he's heard now an answer from God, he's crying out for him to teach him. Teach me. Having been with God, the psalmist now petitions for God's ways. And remember Psalm 119, verse 1, 2, and 3 is that blessed way. We talked about God's way of blessing. Verse 1, 2, and 3 of Psalm 119. He's crying out and petitioning for God's ways. So look at the progression. God's answer in prayer leads to teach me your statutes. And then he goes on, he says, make me understand the way of your precepts. Lord, he says, obviously, I I didn't thrive too well handling things my way. Teach me and make me understand your way. Make me understand. It's almost like he's saying, God, if you have to, move me. Move me. Make me. Very deliberate here. It's deliberate, listen. It's deliberate, I believe, because the psalmist so longs to walk with his God. And if you too desire to walk with God, you're going to make deliberate pleas to the Lord. Because you realize and you come to experience that you can't do this on your own. God, make me. Make me understand. Make me get what your word says. Lord, sometimes I make this a lot more difficult than I need to. Lord, just make me understand your precepts. What's the progression? So shall I meditate on your wonderful works. You see, hearing from God brings life. Hearing from God opens the door to hear ongoing from God, to be taught by Him. Hearing from God opens the door for desire to understand His Word. Hearing from God opens the door to take in and meditate now on His life-giving works, on His wonderful works. You see, we delight in Him. We delight in what He does. We delight in His gift to us and giving to us and revealing to us all things in His Word. We are consumed, in short, with Him. So the progression seems to be petition and confession, answer to prayer. It's got this desire to be taught, the desire to understand what I'm being taught for the purpose of meditating on His wonderful works. And then you get to verse 28. And verse 28 seems to jump backwards. Keep in mind that the Psalms are a part of the poetry genre. And oftentimes in poetry, you might see writing that is on one hand written this way, writing that is on another hand written this way, perhaps worded two different ways, but perhaps also speaking to the very same thing. Right here in verse 28, we see the psalmist. Again, looking at the heart, my soul melts from heaviness. Strengthen me according to your word. If we were to look to this point, we would be able to see the psalmist has experienced a few challenges already up to this point. And he's, he's put these in writing. In verse 19, we see, I'm a stranger in the earth. Do not hide your commandments from me. There's this idea of, of isolation or alienation. In verse 23, he says, princes also sit and speak against me. There's this idea of people are slandering him, speaking against him. Here in verse 25, 
His soul clings to the dust. There's a spirit of, uh, of, of lowliness, depression, you know, humiliation. And then here in 28, his soul melts from heaviness, which that soul melt, the word melt there has in mind a, um, a weeping or uh, one of the translations actually has leaking. He's leaking with sorrow. Notice again the response from the psalmist. He states his condition and immediately appeals to God to strengthen him according to your word. How is one revived or brought back to life? How is one strengthened or raised up according to the word? I believe that by faith he holds that God's word is true. He holds that God's word is trustworthy. He sees it as profitable for soul care. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. And the psalmist appeals to God to revive and strengthen him by the same source that originally brought him life, that originally gave him strength. We've got to understand this. The source that originally gave us life We read Ephesians 2 this morning. It's by His grace that we were saved. The source that originally gave us strength in our weakness. It's the same source we need when sin enters the picture. See, the Word brings life and strengthens the inner man. It builds up fortifications in the mind and it blazes a trail. We talked about last week. The Word blazes a trail of its own a powerful trail of its own in the life of one who's locked into traveling the right way with the Lord. Friends, are you locked in? Are you locked into traveling the right way with the Lord, Jesus Christ? That no matter whether I fall, the, the proverb writer says it this way. A psalmist, I think, alludes to it as well. The righteous man may fall seven times, but he rises back up. He might fall, but he rises back up because he knows who he is. He understands his identity in Jesus Christ. He understands he's been forgiven. He doesn't take advantage and use it as license to sin, but he understands his aim, his objective is that I might not sin because it's my desire to walk with this holy God. I don't know that we handle the word in this way today. I don't know that we, we, we see this word as truly power to save, as being wise for salvation. Paul says elsewhere in Corinthians that this is the word, the word preached. It's foolishness. The foolishness of the word preached has the power to save. It's God's way. It's his way. And the trial of the psalmist seems to, to, to don this ugly face in verse 29. Look at 29. He says, remove from me the way of lying and grant me your law graciously. This way of lying is a way of deceit, a way of falsehood. Deception can make you feel like you're down in the dirt, friends. Deception can lead to sorrow of heart. The way of lying and deception eats away at the insides. One lie, another lie, deception after deception. You might think you're getting away and no one knows. All of a sudden, your life on the outside is not matching what's happening on the inside. You might be performing well. You might be putting on a happy face, some of you. Maybe have become very good at that. But the lies and the deception are eating away on the inside. You know what that is? If you are in Christ, you know what that is? That eating away? That's called conviction. Conviction. It's one of the things that the Holy Spirit does very well. He convicts us being in Christ. He also convicts those who are not yet in Christ... But I'm speaking right now directly to those who are in Christ. He convicts us when we are off the beaten path, so to speak. We've jumped over the railing and we're we're trying to go our own direction, our own way. 
a follower of the Lord doesn't go the way of lying, friends. The conviction you feel eating at you is the work and ministry of God's Spirit in you. Calling you back to the map of truth. The Holy Spirit always does this. He always is pointing you to the words of truth. He's reminding you. He's reminding you what road you committed to walk for the long haul. See, petitioning a holy God in the midst of sinful living. What's needed is a great outpouring of grace. That's what he says. Grant me your law graciously. He realizes he needs it and at the same time he realizes he doesn't deserve it. According to the scriptures, when is God seen pouring out his grace, friends? God opposes whom? The proud. But he gives grace and opens the door for his grace to whom? The humble. The humble. A spirit of humility. Declaring your ways. Confessing, repenting of your sin. Recognizing that God hates it. And that it is not acceptable to walk this way as a follower of his. The way of lying is characterized by Satan. Can we just put that forward? He's the father of lies, John 8, 44. He's the father of lies. So you want to walk in the way of lying, you are walking in his way. Remove from me the way of, and you can fill in the blank. Perhaps it would be good for you to take notes here. Those of you that take notes, maybe you can just write that phrase down. Remove from me the way of, you know, you're reading this and, and resonating with what the psalmist is going through. Maybe it's not lying. Maybe it's not deceitful living, though, for you. Take just a moment and write down what you need to remove from you. Remove from me the way of, write it in. What is it? Declare your ways to him. Come before him with a contrite heart. Be ready to repent, to turn away from your sin. And, and whatever you just wrote down, or whatever you thought of in that moment to fill in that blank, turn from it, ask God to remove it. But we need to understand, each one of us need to flee this. We need to pluck it out. We need to cut it off. We need to ponder the path of our feet. Whatever it takes. Men that mean to travel the right way will lay before them a map. Are you meaning to travel the right way? Look at verse 30. He says, I have chosen the way of truth. I have chosen the way of truth. Your judgments I have laid before me. Add to what you just wrote a moment ago. You've got remove the way of, and you filled in the blank. This is sort of the follow-up to why you're going to do this. Why you're petitioning God to do this in you. I have chosen the way of truth. I have chosen the way of truth. I have laid before me. It gets this picture I was reminded of Hezekiah. Remember how Hezekiah, he heard the news and he went upstairs in his room and what did he do with the report? He spread it out before the Lord in prayer. And it's almost like a psalmist when he says, I've laid, your judgments laid out before me. Do we have his word laid out before us? Because friends, if his word is laid out before us and we see it and we've chosen truth to walk in, we've got it right here. That's why it's so important to have his map. We've got it. And we walk in that way. It's called simple obedience by faith. We walk that way. We're going to sing just a moment. Trust and obey. For there is no other way to be happy in Jesus. To be happy in Jesus and not be clinging to the dust. If you want to be happy in Jesus, I'm not saying happy in Jesus is going to keep you trial free. It's not. I'm talking about on the inner man. Happy in Jesus. You won't be clinging in the dust. We've got that map before us. Walk in the way he's given to us. 
See, we have contrasted here this way of lying and the way of truth. And he's deliberate about his direction, the psalmist is. He says, I have chosen. I've chosen. See, he knows the right way to travel. And so do you. Every single one of us here who are in Christ, we know the right way. We know. But there are times when we don't go that way. Our own desires interfere, don't they? He traveled for a time in the way of lying, but convicted. He's returned to his choice of truth. I have chosen the way of truth. It's sort of like a declaration statement. This is what I've chosen. Are you choosing each day the way of truth? Or are you maybe substituting choosing the way of truth with holding to something like a decision to, that you made to accept Christ? Maybe a walk in an aisle or, or praying a prayer. Maybe you're relying upon a decision just simply to tolerate Christ and you're here today and you know, he's good, you know he's good, he's a good person. And there are a lot of people today who believe Jesus was a good moral person, but you don't really buy into everything. Not only do you not buy into it, but you're not really interested in it. Your heart's not in it. Are you relying upon the decision to just know about Christ? It's sufficient, you're thinking to yourself, just to know about him, know a few of the verses. I know uh, John 3.16 and Romans 3.23 and uh, Genesis 1, 1. I know a few of those verses. Just know about him. Uh, are you relying upon your decision, dads and moms, to just simply raise your children up in the church? This whole idea of just being content with morality. I'm going to bring them to church. You know, there are people who aren't in the church building. But when they start having children, all of a sudden, they, they think that now they need to go into the church building for benefit of their children. They need to have a, a good place for them to go and learn about good things. There's a sense of parenting from a morality standpoint. Is that what we're resting on? Is that what we're relying upon? I think there's some that even rest on a decision to serve the Lord. They're, they're deeming that they're serving the Lord through good deeds and through their offerings. And that's really nothing more. If, if that's all it is, if we're resting upon that decision, you're, you're nothing more than a philanthropist. You're giving your money. There are a lot of philanthropists around giving their money. To good causes. What is it, friends, that you have chosen as it pertains to Jesus? What have you chosen? We see in the, in the scripture there are some terms. Believe, receive, by faith, walk in his commandments. When we walk in his commandments by faith, we are showing ourselves to be a disciple of his, a follower of his, a student of his. Abiding in him, John 15, and keeping to his commandments shows your love for him. You can say that you love him, but your life exhibits that you really do love him. Do you deem the way of truth to be the right way? Does your life then reflect your answer? Does your life reflect your answer? He says, I cling to your testimonies. O Lord, do not put me to shame. And I'm reminded here that the Lord knows our every weakness. Praise God. He knows our frame that we originated from the dust. The psalmist is clinging. Same word as used in verse 25. Right? Verse 25, it was used, he's clinging to the dust. Now, now what's he clinging to? God's testimonies. He's clinging. He's holding on. It's a tough ride. Hey, life's hard, isn't it? Life's hard. And because it's hard, we had all, in Christ, we'd all better be holding on and clinging to his testimonies because it is hard. See, this is a very real recognition that in the moment of temptation, we must treat it as though we're truly in a battle. And we talked for several weeks in Ephesians 6, didn't we? Ephesians 6, put on the whole armor of God. Cling to his testimonies. There are many around you and there are many dangers within that seek to edit the map before you. A lot of people are trying to edit this map. If you, have, if you notice that, there's a lot of people trying to tweak the map, trying to, say, trying to get it to say something that it really doesn't say. That's not an old story. We go back to the book of Genesis and the, the serpent, the cunning serpent, did the same thing. Tried to twist it. 
tried to tweak it a little bit. Did God really say? Yeah, he did really say. See, these voices are calling us to go here and to go there and to turn this way and turn that way. The Lord has already called you unto himself. He's essentially said, go. This is the way. Walk in it. Listen to my voice, he says. Follow me. Deny yourself. Deny your fancies. Deny your selfish desires and take my yoke upon you. Come to me and you'll find rest for your souls. You see, the one we follow is holy and he's called us to be holy. To walk in his way of truth. And he's promised to travel with us. Look at verse 32. I love this verse. I will run. I will run. Some of us in here are faster runners than others. But here we see once again this resolve. The resolve is found in verses 7 and 8 where he says, I will praise you. I will keep your statutes. We see it in verses 15 and 16. I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. And it shows up again here in verse 32. I will. I will run. I'm going to resolve to run. Spurgeon says this. He says, the running Christians are comparably few. In other words, they're not very many. Walking and sitting Christians are comparatively common. But the running Christian is so uncommon as often to be thought almost mad. I read that. I was drawn back to Paul before Agrippa in Acts chapter 26. He gets to the end. Actually, he doesn't get to the end. Agrippa interrupts him once again. Paul never gets to the end of his speeches in Acts. He gets interrupted. And he says, Agrippa, Paul, you're beside yourself. Your great learning has driven you mad. And Paul graciously says, uh, I'm not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. That's in Acts 26, 24 and 25. Are you a running Christian this morning? Are you running? Are you running this race? I'm afraid that there's some here who aren't running. I'm afraid here there are some who don't even like the thought of running this race. It's hard. Do you have that resolve? And do you know that coupled with that resolve is the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ with you? You're not running this race by yourself. You can't run this race by yourself. Not only do you need the Lord Jesus Christ and his spirit empowering you, but you need each other. You need brothers and sisters to help you run this race. Some of you, I believe, are treating this as as though I pick and choose. I pick and choose. I like coming. You know, we, we treat church meetings sometimes as a buffet. I'll come to this one if I can make it, if I got something going on. If I, eh, I'll go to another church or I'll go to this or I'll go to that. What are we doing? Are we running or not? Are we in this together or not? I will run. Running Christians speak the words of truth and reason. But they run only as the Lord enlarges or broadens or widens their heart. And understanding. Here, here are these two, two words, two phrases that, that I was looking in 32. I will, I will run, you shall enlarge. I will run, you shall enlarge. And there I was drawn, turn with me for just a moment to Isaiah. We're just about done. Hang in there with me. We're just about done. We're, we're racing to the finish line here. Okay, so hang in here with me. Isaiah chapter 40 is wonderful. Starting in verse 8, and it's a couple questions. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. It's unsearchable. We can't get down to the bottom of that depth. He gives power to the weak. In other words, he gives power to those who are clinging to the dust. To those who might have who have no might, he increases strength. To those who maybe are melting with heaviness, he gives strength that's needed. 
Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord, those who trust the Lord and His way, His map, right? Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run. There it is. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. I will run the course of your commandments for you shall enlarge my heart. I will work out my salvation with fear and trembling for you are at work in me both to will and to do according to your good pleasure. I will run in freedom for you have redeemed me. I will run the abundant life that's set before me for you came and you lived and you died and you rose again that I might now run in this newness of life that you've given to me. You see, the resolve to run the course of his commandments, it springs forth out of what he did to my heart. He changed my heart. And we ask God to keep changing our hearts, to keep conforming us, that we might look more like him, that we might run a little bit freer. Some of us are running, maybe we're jogging, and we just need to be freed up. We still got some weights on our ankles. Those of you that got weights on your ankles, you need to free those weights up. Because sin is like, it ensnares you. And and Hebrews chapter 12 talks about how that whole idea of throwing those things off. The things that slow you down. Things that weigh you down. You wouldn't think about running a race. Running a marathon. With weights on your ankles. Right? No, we want to get those ankles off there. We don't want those weights on our ankles. We want to be able to run. And Christ has set us free to be able to run in that way. As our great shepherd, he has provided life that we may go in and out and have abundant life. He's still working on us and desires to work on us. That's called sanctification. He still desires to set you apart that you might run even more with him in this way of truth. One writer said, justified men always long to be sanctified. Justified men always long to be sanctified. I've chosen the way of truth. And I was reminded at the end of Psalm 139 where the psalmist says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. Know the things that I worry about. And see if there's any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Make me understand. Move me, Lord. Get me where I need to be with you. For this way everlasting, this way of truth, this is the way of Jesus. His word provides the map of walking in this life-giving, light-shining path. Therefore, men and women who are here, who mean to travel the right way, will lay before them not any old map, but the blood-bought, life-giving, transformative treasure map of God's Word. We need to understand that the treasure is Jesus. Resolve to run. Will you run? I will run course of your commandments for you shall enlarge my heart let's pray father thank you for these words thank you for the encouragement that we gain through these words I pray each of us would would resolve and as the psalmist concludes here in 32 to resolve to run run the race with you for you for your glory for your honor That, Lord, we encounter situations in our lives where we fall. We get sidetracked. And we find ourselves laid low in the dust like the psalmist here in verse 25. We find ourselves on a way of of deceit, in a way of lying. Or whatever way that we described as we were writing down earlier in the message. We're asking of you and petitioning of you to remove this way. That we might be able to run In your way. Remind us, Lord, each day of the path that we've chosen. This path of truth. We've chosen the path of truth. 
You have redeemed us. You've set us free. You've given us liberty in Christ. You've called us to run. Not to walk. Not to be passive. Not to be passerbys. Just hanging out in the stands, being a spectator. You have called us to engage and to participate. To run the race marked before us. To set our eyes on the prize. The prize is Jesus Christ. And we thank you that we have Christ to look at while we run. May we keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus. Who's the author and the perfecter of this race. He's run the race. He knows everything about the race. I pray, Lord, that by faith we would run trusting and obeying our King. Thank you, Father, for your word and the wonderful words of life that are here in Jesus' name. Amen.